Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you for joining me once again. I'm recording this intro for you from my hotel room in Phoenix, where I am doing a big weekend of stand-up comedy. I'm so excited to be back on the road again. So if you live in Boston, Arlington, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Nashville, New York City, Spokane, Washington, or Tacoma, Washington, head to adamconover.net slash tour dates to get tickets. And of course, please keep watching The G Word on Netflix. And if you like the show, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Adam Conover. And I thank you for doing so. Now, this week, we're talking about artificial intelligence. Now, you might have seen in the news from the past week that a Google engineer named Blake Lemoyne was put on paid leave after claiming that Google's AI language model was, in fact, sentient. This is a language model called Lambda, a.k.a. Google's language model for dialogue applications. And what happened was Blake asked some questions of it and then from its answers came to the conclusion that it was conscious and had the intelligence of a seven or eight year old and needed to be treated as such. And he kept pushing his Google colleagues to recognize his supposed discovery. Now, there's a couple weird things about this story. First of all, he wasn't put on paid leave just because of his claims about the AI. He also sent a bunch of confidential information to lots of different people, including a senator, and claimed that Google had engaged in religious discrimination. And also, critically, the uh, the transcript that he put together that he claimed proved the thing was sentient was, in fact, edited from lots of different conversations that he combined in order to make it look like the system was much more fluent with language than it actually was. Now, Google and pretty much every actual AI researcher has rejected Lemoyne's claims and with very good reason, not just because he edited the transcripts to make them look more compelling than they were, but because anyone who knows how these language models actually work knows that there is no way this thing is sentient. All that these language models do is that they are fed in a huge amount of data, huge amount of text from the Internet, from novels, things like that. And then they mash up that text, rearranging it into a different output. That's literally all that they do. It's basically a sophisticated form of magnetic poetry. And saying that a system like this is actually sentient is a lot like saying your fridge wrote a poem. All right. It it did not. It is not intelligent. This is a human tool that humans use to produce language in a very cool, somewhat novel way. But the fact that Lemoyne was actually convinced he really did believe the AI was sentient really does illuminate something that's actually very frightening about AI. See, we've lived with this fantasy for years that one day AI would become sentient and either take over the world or we would need to learn how to behave ethically towards it, right? We need to learn how to treat Data, the intelligent android from Star Trek, just like we would a fellow human being. That is what our fantasies have led us to believe in reality. But the truth of what's dangerous about AI is far different. See, the real problem is that we as a species are so gullible and so good at creating systems that seem to be intelligent to us even when they are not, that we believe in AI even when nothing of the sort exists. 
The perfect example of this, of course, is self-driving cars. The industry has convinced people that self-driving cars are either just around the corner or already here, with the result that people are buying cars that have much more rudimentary automated driving features and treating them as though they can actually take their hands off the wheel and their eyes off the road with deadly results. But an even deeper risk is that it distracts us from paying attention to who is actually making the decisions. See, if we treat AI as some inevitability, some enormous force of the future that is just going to come and envelop us and change our world regardless of what we do, well, that makes us less likely to question the people who are actually building technology, questioning people who work at Google, who work at Tesla, who work at Netflix when they tell us that their algorithm can decide what we want to watch and what we don't. In reality, humans are the ones creating these algorithms, creating these systems. And when they try to deflect blame and say, oh, no, the AI did it. The super intelligent AI is coming for us. It's changing everything. Well, it might make us less likely to ask the people who are actually creating these tools what they are doing and why. Artificial intelligence, in other words, is in a lot of ways like the Wizard of Oz. It's false, it's a ruse, it's a fake power that we are all investing all of our fears and concerns into when in reality, we should be asking, who's making the decisions behind the curtain? So to cut through the bullshit around this issue and talk about what is really at stake and what we should really be concerned about when it comes to, quote, artificial intelligence, we have an actual intelligence on the show, a real life human expert. Her name is Emily Bender, and she's a computational linguist at the University of Washington. And she has written about the risks of massive language models and what we currently call artificial intelligence. Please welcome Emily Bender. Emily, thank you so much for being on the show. I am super excited to join you. This is going to be fun. It's going to be, we're going to have a great time today. Uh, I, I want to jump right into it. We're constantly bombarded lately by articles, pieces in the news about how amazing AI is, how great it is at things, or how terrifying it is, how we should all be worried about what it can do. You wrote a piece recently with the wonderful title uh, on AI that we should resist the urge to be impressed. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. Very contrarian, which is up my alley. Um, and I think you have some expertise in this because you work in computational linguistics. Why should we resist the urge to be impressed by AI? Why should we resist the urge? What, not, not where's the urge coming from, but why should we resist? We should Well, start wherever you like. So yeah, you can no. start with where it comes from if you want. Um, let's start with, with, with why to resist. Um, there is a lot of power being concentrated these days in the name of AI. And that power comes in the form of money, and it comes in the form of collections of data, and it comes in the form of influence on our systems of governance. And um, that is real, right? The, the claims about what the technology can do, some of them are well-founded and some of them are not, but the power is real. And the more we are in awe of what this technology can supposedly do, the less well-positioned we are to counteract that power. And that's, mm. that's the why. So it's that if we if we maintain that sense of awe, oh my gosh, AI is so amazing, then we are what less likely to question what it does, less likely to talk about why it actually is doing the things that it's doing. Instead, we'll just see it as some supernatural force or something. Right. In fact, we're less likely to question what people are doing with it. Mm. Right. As we get impressed with, oh, it's AI. It's this autonomous thing. It's so smart. It can do all these things. Why don't we just let those objective machines decide? And that's what yeah. the people selling it are telling us that they're providing. And, and none of that is true. And we need to sort of hold on to human agency, both our own agency, but also accountability for the people behind the so-called AI. 
Right. You talk about uh, a piece by Stephen Johnson in the New York Times, who's a wonderful writer, um, but he writes about AI and how smart it is and is it getting too smart and do we need to put in safeguards against how intelligent and super smart AI is? And you really take issue with that framing from him. Could you tell me why? Yeah. Um, so it's uh, that was a piece about uh, this organization called OpenAI. And it was the journalist sort of just speaking from the point of view of OpenAI. And you're right, he's a fantastic writer. So my Medium post responding to it, I made an audio paper version of it where I recorded it. Mm. And when I, so there's a bunch of quotes from him and then there's my writing and I could really feel the difference in level of editing <laughs> between those as I was reading them. It's like, okay, yeah, but I turned mine around in a weekend so that it would be out there and I won't feel well, bad and, about that. And he's a journalist. You're actually a subject matter expert who works in computational linguistics. So, you know, his, yeah. his job is pretty prose and your job is telling us exactly what's going on. So, yeah. you know, go, right. not to denigrate but, journalists at all, but please, exactly. what was your perspective but, though? Um, so I had the impression that he basically just bought into what they were saying. And this is this is an organization that um, looked at this idea of AI and sort of imagined a world in which we have autonomous AIs and the AIs aren't doing what we want, pe we, we want them to do as people. And so they said, okay, what we need to do is solve this problem by figuring out how to build AIs that take on human values and do that as fast as possible. Mm. Um, and all of that sort of presupposes that AI is a thing, that it's going to happen no matter what, um, that this group of people in San Francisco are well positioned to know what human values are, um, and that there aren't other problems that are under this rubric of AI. And so this mm. whole 10,000 word piece focusing on what they're trying to solve and sort of saying, is this the right way to solve it? Just was such a narrow view. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I knew the piece was coming out because I got interviewed for it and had this back and forth that you'll see in, in my Medium post about he's saying, but um, you know, is, is it a good idea to teach them human values? And I'm like, that's a complete misframing. And he sort of like kept pushing back with that thought. And I was like, okay, this is, this is not going to be a good piece when it comes out. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just from the interview, you were like, you're on the wrong track, dude. Yeah. And I'm trying yeah. to course correct and you're not taking the course correction. Mm. Um, so, you know, out it comes and I'm like, yeah, I need to, I need to say something. And, and partially I felt personally responsible because I was in the piece with a couple other people, uh, Meredith Whitaker and Gary Marcus as skeptics. But the yeah. way we were presented is like, okay, you're in the skeptics box over there. Here's the big claims from OpenAI. And then there's the people who disagree. And it's like, but that gives the framing to OpenAI. And yeah. the question isn't, what's the best way to build AI from my perspective? The question yeah. is, what is happening right now as people are using these collections of data and collections of money and collections of computers and working in the space that's underregulated? Like, how do we educate the public as to what the public needs to know to resist that? And that article yeah. was not that. Yeah. And Meredith Whitaker, who you mentioned, by the way, previous guest on the show, we talked about many of these issues with her. Um, but let's pull apart some of the assumptions that you say that this piece and most media on AI sort of takes for granted that we need to question. You open by saying it presupposes that AI is a thing even, yeah. um, that asking the question, okay, should we, it's like a science fiction question. Should we uh, teach AI to have human values presupposes a fact about AI, that AI is, I don't know, like the Steven Spielberg movie, like some little child with super intelligence who we're going to, you know, teach um, uh, when that, uh, according to you, I guess, is not the case. What, what is the truth about 
whether is AI a thing? Is AI a thing? Yeah. So, so I went to school in California um, in the '90s. Undergrad at Berkeley, grad student um, at Stanford, studying linguistics all the way through. But I was sort of around the computer scientists because there's this notion of cognitive sciences, and we all fit in. And the standing understanding then, as a kind of a joke, was um, as soon as you knew how to build something in a computer, that problem was no longer an AI problem. Mm. Right. As soon as so, as soon as you could build a computer that could play chess, well, chess is no longer AI because we've understood how to do it. So, and so we no longer just like we no longer even call it artificial intelligence. Is that the is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Ah. So these things that were like AI problems, once they got solved, they sort of left the AI part of computer science and became just their own thing that was more specific. Um, ah. And I think part of what was going on there is that here's like how could we possibly make a computer that could you know play chess. Oh, here's how we do it. Oh, okay. Well, it's just this program that works that way. That's not artificial intelligence. And I think what's happened in the last few years with the the large neural models, so it's called deep learning. You hear about large language models yeah. and, and large computer vision models is we've learned how to scale up the computation, right? So the hardware and the software that allow us to just deal with enormous amounts of text and image um, to the point that we can no longer look at and say, Ah, I understand how it's doing what it's doing. Mm -hmm. And so now that we have computers that can generate coherent sounding text, um, that doesn't fall out of AI because we can't look at it and go, ah, oh, but I see how it's doing it. So therefore it's not artificial intelligence. And so we just assume this mind in there. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I, this is making a lot of sense to me because it's true. I grew up in you know the 90s and we had deep blue versus gary kasparov when the computer mm -hmm. beat gary kasparov at chess and it was like on the cover of newsweek every week like our computers smarter than man like is artificial intelligence here now no one talks about chess playing as part of artificial intelligence like yeah it's just a video game like a video game can also beat you at Super Mario Brothers. You know, like we can program a computer to play Super Mario Brothers yeah. better than a human. We're not like worried or transfixed about this. It's just like, yeah, there's just a fucking algorithm that you write, like no big deal. And also critically, we know that those algorithms are written by people. Like yes. the whole framing of of Deep Blue at the time was, a, a, you know, an, an intentional sort of creating mystique around the computer, but like, I can buy a chess program that'll beat Gary Kasparov for $9.99 from the Apple store. It's not, <laughs> it's not like, and I don't think it's some super intelligence that I'm worried is going to take over the world. I know it's just like, yeah, the people at chessgaming.com or whatever, like coded a good chess engine. And we know this. Um, so to that degree, it's, it makes it appear that as you're saying, we no longer call that AI. So AI, the way we've used it, is always science fiction. It's always off in the future. We're, we framed it as something mystical and magical. And once we understand something, we no longer call it AI, except that now these new models are weird enough that they stay in the mysterious zone, in the magical zone, in our in our minds. Like when you use one of these things that generates, uh, you know, that generates massive amounts of text or, or images, um, mm -hmm. it, it's, its output is like random enough or, or unpredictable enough and taps into our understanding of enough. Like it looks like text to us. We're like, Oh, there's a mind under there, but there still isn't. It's still just made by people. It's still just made by people. And because it's landed in this magical zone and stayed there, then we fill in all of these other magical things it might be doing. Mm -hmm. So I have something, I think you're going to enjoy this. There's a researcher in Italy named Stefano Quintarelli, and he's proposed a different name for AI because part of the problem is we call it AI, and so then we make a bunch of assumptions based on that, right? But he says we should instead call it 
systematic approaches to learning algorithms and machine inferences, abbreviated mm. salami. Right? <laughs> and then you okay. ask questions like, um, will salami develop some form of consciousness? Will salami have emotions? Can salami <laughs> acquire a personality similar to humans? <laughs> so he's making the point that the it's the word that we choose because we are calling this artificial intelligence as opposed to a big algorithm or something yeah. like that. We we are we are ascribing it human qualities like, oh, should we teach it to love? Should we teach it human mm -hmm. ethics? Mm -hmm. When in reality, we should be asking, hey, who the fuck is designing this thing? Exactly. which is what we would do if we had a different name for it. Yeah. And what's it built for? And how well does it work in that context that we're trying to use it? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and one of these that, 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 so he's got this long list of questions. Um, and the last one is, can you possibly fall in love with a salami? <laughs> and I'm like, I know people who are really into cured meat, so maybe. But <laughs> yeah, but that, it, it, it makes a point about the absurdity of the way that we talk about artificial intelligence. And it's something that I've really noticed in the tech industry in the last 10 years that um, it has become even more enamored with science fiction than it was in the past. Like, I think what was remarkable about the tech industry from the 80s, 90s, was that it actually was not mirroring science fiction. That I used to thought think it was remarkable that like Isaac Asimov did not predict the internet, right? Isaac, Isaac Asimov predicted that there'd be one giant mainframe that you would ask questions and it would say, hello, Adam, I have the answer, right? But that's <laughs> not what computers turned out to be. But lately, We've had all these technologists who are trying to create specifically what was in the Isaac Asimov novels they read them they, when they were kids, which means they're trying to create some spooky mystical brain that they can say, whoa, we're not in control of this thing about, even though they are in control of it. The, the thing that surprises me about this is that, yes, I definitely feel, because I was a big science fiction nerd as a kid too. I loved reading it, but I feel like these technologists missed the point of a lot of those stories. That, mm -hmm. you know, the stories were, like the heart of science fiction is not gee, cool tech, it's what happens to humans if we change this thing about the universe, right? And that's going to be yeah. true of, of, of all kinds yeah. of speculative fiction. And, um, you know, what can go wrong? In what ways are humans resilient? And the sort of sci-fi inspired tech these days just seems to be, I want the gadgets from Star Trek. And yeah. not like, I want to think about humans and how they interact with this stuff. Because so many stories from from science fiction, including Star Trek, are like, okay, we have these gadgets. Why might it be bad to have those gadgets? Right. Right. <laughs> what might happen? What, what consequences might arise from those gadgets? That's the fun part of science fiction, not just like, wow, there's a cool gun. What happens when you have a gun that, that that's that cool? And exactly. that's what these technologists do not seem interested in asking. But so, okay. You, we've established how the way we talk about artificial intelligence is is essentially based on a fantasy, and you know, folks like writers of the New York Times are not adequately diving into what is the reality of these systems and how they work. So, just talking about text generation, which is one of the big new frontiers of AI. There's this model GPT-3, which is able to produce extremely convincing text. And even before this was released, you were seeing articles that were like, this is going to destroy writing because it's just going to replace writers. I know people, uh, you know, in the Writers Guild, of which I'm a member, that we had members who were worried, what if AI comes and takes our screenwriting jobs? Um, which is a huge leap to, to think that. But that was literally what the articles were telling them. So what is the reality of what, you know, these text generations systems actually are that is more true than the fantasy we're being sold. Yeah. Um, 
So I'm going to give you a little linguistics lesson here. Bear with me. No, right? that, no. Uh, are you kidding? Bear with you? That is what this podcast is all about. That is what right. we are excited for. Give me the linguistics lesson. Okay. Here's, this is not all of linguistics. This is focused on sort of syntax, semantics, pragmatics, which is part of linguistics. But a key thing about language is that it's what the Saussure called a system of signs. So there's the signifier, the actual form of what you say, and then there's the meaning, what you convey by saying it. So I'm going to give you an example. So the form could be the words I'm saying to you. It could be um, a bunch of letters arranged so that they make English words because you and I both speak English, right? Mm -hmm. If we were um, fluent users of American Sign Language, it could be, you know, gestures with our hands and face and, and posture, right? Um, all of that is form. If I put some linguistic form somewhere where somebody who shares that linguistic system can perceive it, then because they share that system, they can pick out what the sort of standing or standard or literal meaning of that phrase is. Mm. So for example, I'm going to tell you about a tweet that I wrote that had the words, I'd like more people to know about, at sign, images of AI, just saying, and then a URL. All mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you're an English speaker too. So you get that and you're like, okay, somebody said this um, and they are a person who has this desire about other people and, and et cetera. You were able to unpack that. Yes. Um, if you have a little bit of shared context with me, you can figure out what I was trying to do with it um, by using that meaning, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, she's probably trying to get people to click on this link and see what this betterimagesofai.org thing is. By mm -hmm. the way, it's super cool. It's a bunch of artists who have come up with better ways to represent what's actually happening with AI mm. um, than those like electronic brain pictures we're constantly seeing. Um, <laughs> all right. So the, I just the, think, the illustrations in news articles can tend to be a little bit first thought, I will admit. Yes. Um, please <laughs> yeah. go on. So just taking you through the form and then the sort of literal meaning and then the, the speaker's intent, which is mm -hmm. also the public commitments, right? When I've gone on and said that thing in a tweet, then I am publicly committed to that content yes. that people can figure out based on the context. The next step is called perlocutionary consequences, all right? Mm. And that's what happens in the world because I said that. Ah. Did I change someone's belief? Did I get somebody to click on that image? And so on. Right. But that's sort of beyond my public commitments. Right. If you shared a little bit more context with me, like my um, colleague who DM'd me did, um, well, let me, let me back up. So there's that just say in there. And we share the context of this is Twitter. You might have guessed that that was a subtweet because of the just saying. Right. Uh, uh huh. Uh huh. Not publicly committed to that being a subtweet, right? It's it's sort of a subtle, like further reasoning thing. But right. um, and then yeah, if you it's, share, it's a dog whistle to people who know who who share even more context with you. Exactly. Who might go, oh, I know, I know what Emily's thinking about this. Yeah. Um. So if you share that context, and you know that I've also just been tweeting about the Seattle Times. Um, op-ed that I put out where there was some of the awful AI art associated with it, then mm. you might have been able to pick up, oh, okay, she's actually subtweeting the Seattle Times, as my colleague did. And he sent me a DM and said, did you just gently subtweet the Seattle Times? Like, yes, I did. <laughs> but anyway, so that's how people use language, right? We have yeah. this shared code that consists of form and its literal meaning. And when I speak, I am not handing you literal meanings. I am... Um, working to convey some communicative intent and I'm giving you a big clue to it by the words that I chose to say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. GPT-3 is doing none of that. Yeah. GPT-3 only has the form part and it's got lots and lots and lots of it. So it knows sort of which forms are plausible combinations, but no connection to any ideas about the world, no connection to the literal meaning and absolutely no speaker intent. It's not trying to communicate anything. Yeah. My understanding of the way that 
an algorithm like GPT-3 works is that it just has a huge body of text that it has hoovered up from the internet from, I don't know, fan fiction websites are one that like these things seem to get a lot from, right? Just like, okay, we've got tens of thousands of pages and pages of text. And so then it just has basically just a little internal table of like, when this word appears, this word is more likely to follow it. And then when that word appears, that word is more likely to follow it, but more complicated than that, but basically that. And then when it starts with one word, it like says, okay, what word follows that? What word follows that? What word follows that? What word follows that? And it's able to, by doing a much more sophisticated version of what I just said, output text that to us sounds sensical. But apart from that, it's just sort of trying to like, hey, I can make something that resembles my input text statistically. And that's what it's doing. Am I am I generally right? You're generally right, yeah. I mean, you, when you say it's more complicated than that, yes, it's more complicated because it's able to take into account lots and lots and lots of preceding words. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's not just like, given the last two words, what's the most plausible next one? But you can get yeah. it to be like stylistically coherent because it's dealing with a much larger window. But it's basically that. And it's just like, which string of letters is a likely one to come next after the 50 previous strings of letters? Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's no there's no there there. It is literally, in fact, it's not even making up ideas. It's making up strings of letters. Yeah. And it only becomes an idea when somebody reads it and tries to make sense of it. Yeah. And so the the question is, why would we even call that artificial intelligence? I mean, it, it, there's nothing intelligent about that. There's no understanding. There's no there's no purposeful construction of a sentence. There's no idea, as you say, that's trying to be conveyed. It's just like. Hey, it's it's randomness that has been shaped to resemble human writing. Um, but why why would we even label that as intelligence? That when when we when you talk about it that way. Yeah. Um I think it's because we are so easily taken in because we are so good at interpreting language. Like yeah. as soon as soon as we come across language, you know, something we hear, something we see in a language we speak without like we can't help but imagine a mind behind it. Yeah. And so it is super easy to get taken in. So this is the like resist the urge to be impressed. This is where the urge is coming from. You know what right? this is? Okay, uh, tell me if you like this metaphor. Say, you know, everyone knows the infinite room with monkeys on typewriters, mm-hmm. right? There's an infinite room. You got monkeys. They're all hitting typewriters randomly. And some of the monkeys through statistics are going to like write a Shakespearean sonnet or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, what if you could create an algorithm in the infinite room that anytime a monkey typed a character that was not part of Shakespeare, a bullet goes through the monkey's brain and the, and the monkey drops dead and they stop typing. <laughs> Right. And then you walk in and you pick out, okay, uh, all these monkeys are dead. Here's, I'm sorry that it's so violent. This is just where, (laughs) this is off the top of my head and this is where my mind is going. I'm very sorry. I don't endorse violence against monkeys, but you, so you go in and you're like, all right, I'm going to find the alive monkeys. Oh, this one, you know, this one happens to resemble Shakespeare a lot. And you hand that to someone. It would be ridiculous to say, oh, well, that monkey is intelligent, right? Because you have algorithmically sorted the randomness in such a way that you've produced an output that we find sensical. Um, we we would understand that that is just the output of a, of a dumb algorithm. But yeah, because you're right, because we have this ability to, it, it triggers in our brains what makes us recognize humanity in someone else, right? Which is mm-hmm. the the production of like sensical language. Mm-hmm. We are ascribing intelligence to what is not 
fundamentally intelligent. Yeah. Am I am I way off base? I'm sorry again for the violence against the monkeys. <laughs> I, I love monkeys. monkeys. Yeah. Um, uh, you have so, a pained expression. I'm really sorry. Yeah. Um, so the, the difference between the monkeys and something like GPT-3, aside from the fact that the monkeys are something that we should like care for the well-being of and GPT-3 is, doesn't matter, right? Um, is that the the monkeys in that scenario are just sort of randomly sometimes mm-hmm. touching the keyboard, right? Like if you actually picture the monkeys in the keyboards, like most of the time they're not going to be typing, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Unless you yeah, what's up. motivating them to type? Yeah. yeah. Maybe they get bananas when they've hit a certain number of keys, right? Yeah. But, um, so, uh, yeah. So mostly they're not typing. Sometimes they do. And if you have enough monkeys and enough time, then eventually some Shakespearean sonnet will come out. Um, the difference there is there's no selection, right? The, the monkeys are um, typing randomly. In fact, chances are you're going to get more hits at the center of the keyboard. Like there's going to be something ergonomic mm-hmm, that's going to mm-hmm. determine what comes up. Um, with GPT-3, it's um, the, the system for developing it is it is fed lots and lots and lots of text. And at each step, it says, okay, what's my guess as to what the next word is? Yeah. Okay, what actually was the next word? Okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to adjust some of the things in my internal representation so that next time I'm more likely to get that one right. Yeah. So, you know, no, no gunshots required, but sort of through that process, GPT-3 has been shaped into something that comes up with coherent stuff most of the time. As opposed yeah. to the monkeys, um, you know, you're, you're well. That you was off. my idea for an algorithm that selected them by shooting them in the head. But you know what? Yeah. It's a. Ba- I'm gonna. <laughs> it's a bad metaphor. So we don't need to pick apart how stupid what I'm saying is because I'm. Let's be honest, not intelligent either. Um, but but you, you know the the point being that like this is this is not fundamentally an intelligent system in the way that we think it is. Yet we are describing it as though it is, and we need to teach it how to be ethical and all this whatnot when we should be asking, wait, what? who created this system? Who is the human in charge of it? And what is it for? What this reminds me of the most is, um, and I've, I might have ranted about this on the show before, but a couple of years ago, there was a fad for these um, uh, things where it was like, I taught an AI to write a Seinfeld episode. And then there would be like this text that was like semi-nonsensical. And I would look at this as someone who knows a little bit about computers and a lot about comedy writing. And I would look at this and go, a human fucking wrote this. Like there was probably an AI somewhere that was generating text, but a human chose which bits of output were funniest to them and put them in an order. There's no possible way that this was just wholly generated by an AI, but everybody retweeted these things like crazy. They published books of them because everyone loved the fantasy that there was an AI out there that was like kind of smart, but kind of stupid trying to rate, uh, you know, uh, Seinfeld. That was a better story than the, than the fact that there was a human who was behind this, who figured out, Hey, I can sell, I can, I can sell my book proposal. If I say an AI did it right (laughs) now, that's doesn't hurt anybody for us to maintain that fantasy of the funny AI that can write Seinfeld. But what about when you're talking about, you know, I, I don't know, you're talking about the military industrial complex and what it is going to do with AIs or when you're talking about the media industry and, and what it is trying to do with AIs. Is, yeah. is that does that sound more uh, like of a, of a correct take to you than my monkeys on typewriters <laughs> dog shit? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there, there's two things I want to say. One is that with the a human wrote that and with respect to the Seinfeld episode, there's there's two places the humans came in. Right. You, yes. It's clearly a human was going through and cherry picking and getting, you know, what are the stretches that I'm going to use and what's in order to put them in and so on. Um, but also humans wrote the original Seinfeld scripts that the thing was trained on. Right. Right. So it's basically just like a let's let's throw that stuff in a blender, give the human something to play with. And yeah, it'd probably be a pretty crappy episode of Seinfeld. Like it wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't actually work. 
But yeah. it's fun to imagine. It sounds like Seinfeld because guess what? It's remixed Seinfeld. Yeah. Right. <laughs> this is like this is like making magnetic poetry on your fridge and then yeah. saying, "Wow, my fridge wrote a poem." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, you did, and the people who made magnetic poetry wrote a poem yeah. together, right? Yeah, yeah um, exactly. But there was something else that I was going to go with that about the um, oh, so you said yeah, military industrial complex um, and so on, but also you know all of these places that people want to use it where the, there are problems. So um, there is a lack of healthcare professionals in this country, especially around mental health care, and more people who need access to counseling and mental health services. That's a problem. That's a problem we should be throwing resources at. Right? Yeah. We should be making sure that the people doing that work are fully supported um, and that it's accessible and that it's culturally appropriate and, and you know, on and on and on. Um, but people look at that lack and they say, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we could somehow automate this process and um, reduce the workload on these people and give other people access to the healthcare that they need. Yeah. And and there's this this tripping point that I call the machine learning tech solutionism danger zone. Mm. All right. And the idea here is that it would be great if we could start from inputs X and get outputs Y. Um, and the problem with machine learning is that you can make something that looks like it's doing that. Mm. So my example here that that um, I sort of originally came to the thought on was um, these mental health apps that supposedly diagnose disorders based on the sound of your voice. Mm -hmm. mm. And it's like, okay, uh, that I could imagine that that would be useful. There are contexts where it would these help exist the healthcare currently? system. The things that purport to do that, yes. Things wow. that actually do that, no. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And and the problem is that you can certainly write a program that takes as input, okay, I'm going to record a bit of your voice and gives as output, you know, um, no issues or PTSD or, you know, schizophrenia or depression, right? And like, those are the possible outputs and it'll be right some of the time. Yeah. There'll be times where we don't have a way to verify whether or not it's right. And we have some reason we want to believe it. Um, and it's, this is why we have to be skeptical, right? We have to yeah. say when, when someone says, I built a machine that does this, it's like, how do you know? How does it work on the inside? How did you evaluate it? How is it going to fit into some use case where people are going to use it? Yeah. How would how would such a thing even begin to work? I mean, is it just taking voice samples of uh, people who have schizophrenia, people who do not have schizophrenia and saying, well, we're going to compare all their voices and, uh, you know, and based on how much the voice input matches, you know, the statistical breakdown of voices with schizophrenia versus voices who don't, we're going to say your voice either falls in one category or the other. Yeah, basically. Um, well, that's and the problem so, that's is that, so stupid. <laughs> why would that? Why would anyone think that that would have anything to do with? So there, there is one little kernel in there, which is I guess there's some research showing that uh, people who are diagnosed with, let's say, depression, it affects the way they speak. Right? Mm -hmm. if, if you think about like what, what someone sure. can sound depressed, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there might be some signal there, but is it robust enough to do what these apps are claiming? No, right? Yeah. And even if it were, how do we know, right? I'm reminded yeah. also um, in the really early days of the pandemic, um, everyone was scrambling to figure out how do we tell cheaply who's got COVID? Like the real need there, right? Yeah. And so there's a bunch of, of sort of things that popped up out of machine learning labs where it's like, okay, record your voice for science and we're going to develop a system that can classify you as having COVID or not based on the sound of your coughing or the sound of your breathing or whatever. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, where is the training and evaluation data coming from for this, because the whole point is we don't know who has it, right? Yeah. So, and, and it can be 
transmitted when people are asymptomatic. So you got yeah. someone calling, recording their voice or their cough as, you know, non-COVID when they actually, like, it doesn't make any sense at all. But the way these systems work, it's, okay, data in, magic inside the black box, labels out. Yeah. And see, it fits into that need. So therefore, we're going to say that it works and and not do the thing we need to do, which is figure out how to allocate our societal resources to these issues so that we can actually work on real solutions. Yeah. I mean, and at the worst case, this like say, it, you know, I can imagine someone downloading this app, right, um, talking into their thing and talking to their phone. And then go, the app is like, you have depression. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and people taking that way too seriously, because like it's one thing to say, hey, I trained an algorithm to like detect when people are speaking a little bit more slowly than other people, which is like how any of us would listen to someone's voice and go, that person sounds a little depressed, sounds a little low energy, you know. But like if I were to hear you speak and I would say you sound a little depressed because as a human, I recognize the differences in voices that are depressed versus or not. You'd go like, oh, OK, thank you, Adam. Like, sure, you're just some dude. Right. Um, you're some guy who's like applying a very rough heuristic. But if you say I have developed an AI that can detect the difference between depressed voices and not depressed voices, people are going to download that and say the the superhuman AI has told me I have this. And and I've seen this happen in my life. Like I literally have had friends say, oh, my God, TikTok says I have ADD. Like I've like literally people say this to me. I mean, the algorithm knows me so well. It must know I have ADD. I got to go to a doctor. Literally, I've had this conversation with friends. And like that is where I mean, TikTok is one. Let's not get into TikTok, whole other topic. But like when you're leveraging our faith in AI and misrepresenting the power of what it can do, because, you know, people will believe in it more than they should in order to get them to behave differently, that is what's unethical. We don't need to teach the AIs to be more ethical. We need to teach humans to stop doing that shit. Yeah. And you said worst case. I've got a worse case for you than that. Oh, please. Right? Wait, wait. Hold on. We got to go to break. That's a, right. a perfect tease to get us over the, the break. Uh, we'll be right back to hear the even worse case with Emily Bender. Okay, we're back with Emily Bender, where you gave us a you gave us a delicious tease. Uh, you have an even worse case. Lay it on me. I want to yeah. hear what it is. All right. So your worst case was someone picks up the phone and they get a mis um, misconception of what's going on in their own mind. It is really easy to get recordings of other people. Mm. Right. My worst case is who is going to take these supposedly superhuman AI objective diagnoses and use them to make decisions about child custody, to make decisions about employment, to make decisions about um, parole, all of these things mm -hmm. that are really impactful to people's lives based on technology that they don't understand. And if they did understand, they would know was was BS and doesn't work. Yeah. And technology that the humans who have created the technology are decrying responsibility, denying their own responsibility in the system and saying, oh, no, the, the AI did it. Like, I have a very good example of this from my own life. I have a new show out on Netflix. Congrats. Um, and, and thank you very much. Very happy about it. It's called The G Word. Please go watch. Um, but one of my complaints about Netflix, and it's not exclusive to Netflix, it's happening all across the entertainment industry now, is that 
uh, you know, the shows are delivered to you via algorithm, right? Like it, it, sec- it recommends shows to you based on the algorithm. And when you talk to people at Netflix or these other companies and you'll say, why didn't people watch this show or that show? They'll say, oh, well, the algorithm figured out that people didn't like the show. And so it failed because the algorithm didn't give it to them because the algorithm knew that other people didn't like it. Therefore, the algorithm, you know, like it's it's the algorithm knows something about the show that like you, a stupid human, don't know. And I'm sitting there going, look, all the algorithm does is do what does what fucking Amazon's algorithm does. It says people who watched this also watched this. If you like this, you might like that. And it shows it to them. It's extremely simple. It's very dumb. And if you have any sort of critical thinking towards it, you know, it doesn't work very well. But the people who created it will tell you, oh, we have nothing to do it, do with it. We don't decide the winners and losers. We don't choose what is the biggest image that's at the top. When you open your Netflix and you see that giant mm-hmm. banner at the top, mm-hmm. we don't pick that image. The algorithm does. And that's transparently bullshit. People designed the algorithm. People are making choices. They have a whole building full of people who are paid very well, who are very clearly making decisions there, but they will claim that they do not. Um, and now that's, again, that's just Netflix. Who gives a shit? No big deal. Um, but when you're talking about someone using a system like that to determine who gets parole, that's a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's arguably a problem on Netflix as well, because if we basically say we are going to design an algorithm and then just let it go, right? So there's absolutely decisions going into the algorithm, but then that influences the societal conversation, right? Who's watching what? Like, which thing's getting watched? Let's say there's this fantastic documentary. Um, oh, one of your previous guests, uh, Glenn Weil, I think, was talking up the, the digital minister of Taiwan and how everyone should watch a documentary about her mm, life. Yeah. Um, you know, let's say that documentary, let's say he got his wish and that documentary exists. Um, and um, But it's on Netflix and it didn't get promoted and the things near to it didn't get promoted. So it ended up sort of in this, like, you really had to look for it whole. Yeah. And it didn't get seen, right? Yeah. Versus a world in which someone said, hey, I want to make sure people see this. I want to make sure it's discoverable. Um, and then we're talking about it more. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, in terms of like the immediate consequences to the direct people involved, probably the parole decision is a much more impactful one. But yeah. what, you know, when we have these recommender systems that are pushing content to people um, and making it harder, making you have to go out of your way to find other content, that absolutely affects our societal milieu. Yeah. Um, yeah, because people are, uh, and the fact that humans are not taking responsibility yeah. for that, for they're not taking responsibility for determining the input of what is actually being put into the system or taking responsibility for the fact that they set up the algorithm, that they determined what it is. And by the way, Netflix doesn't even call that AI, nor does TikTok call their algorithm AI, but people ascribe those algorithms magical properties when in reality they seem, the TikTok algorithm is not that good. It just shows me videos that are popular. It, it yeah. figures out when people watch the first 10 seconds and don't click away till the end and then it shows those videos to other people, that's it. But people believe that it has some deep insight into their character. Um, so, okay. Uh, well, well, let's see. You, you, uh, recently wrote a paper. I want to make sure I ask about specific work rather than just my own beefs about AI, (laughs) um, about stochastic parrots. I want to understand what that means. Can you explain it to me? Yeah. So stochastic parrots is this phrase that we've made up to, to try to capture what GPT-3 and the like are doing. Like they are, so stochastic means random or probabilistically guided. Um, Mm -hmm. And the idea with the parrot metaphor, parrots are actually very intelligent. I'm reliably informed they're super smart birds. Oh, Um, yeah. And it's also possible that some of them, when they imitate human speech, are doing that because they've learned that they can get a particular effect with a particular sequence of sounds. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty sure that they're not actually using language the way humans use language. So the phrase stochastic parrots is 
that's all these things are. These things that you want to call AI, they are just randomly saying things that sound good to us. I think yes. part of the reason Parrot is so great is that Parrots are fantastic on the, the sound part of it. Right? Parrots yeah. do an amazing job coming up with, with sounds that sound like human spoken languages. Yes. Um, and GPT-3 does an amazing job coming up with pretty large swaths of coherent seeming text. Like that's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a nice facsimile. Um, and um, so that's what that phrase was about. But that, that paper was written um, together with Dr. Timnit Gebru and Dr. Margaret Mitchell and some of their other colleagues at Google and my PhD student, Angelina McMillan Major. And it started because, so this is 2020 and all of the big tech companies are sort of pushing to larger and larger language models. That hasn't stopped, right? There's, there's new ones coming out all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Dr. Gebru was saying, you know, maybe we should think about what the consequences are here. Right. Yeah. Together with, with Dr. Mitchell, they were the leads of the um, ethical AI team at Google. So like their job was to sort of help guide the company to do good things. Um, and so they sort of said, hey, let's think about this. And so she DM'd me, Dr. Gabriel, on Twitter and said, has anyone written any papers about this? And, you know, I said, no, not that I can think of. Um, why? She said, well, I, I want to be able to point to something to sort of like help make the case here internally. Um, and I've been pointing people at your tweet threads. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. But, um, and then the next day I said, well, okay, I don't know any papers, but here's these like six things that I can see of as problems. Hang on, that feels like the outline of a paper. Do you want to write this paper together? Yeah. Um, and she said, wow, yeah, um, well, I'm pretty busy and you're pretty busy, but um, maybe we can make this happen. This was early September of 2020. Um, and um, she pulled in um, four other people from her team, and I pulled in my PhD student, and a month later, we had it submitted to the conference. Um, wow. And yeah, it was it was a whirlwind. Like, none of us had planned on doing that in the month of September, so it was definitely like a squish other work out of the way, get this done kind of a thing. Um, but because we had seven co-authors who had all, you know, been reading kind of broadly in this area, but different parts of it, we were able to pull together this argument about like, okay, what are the environmental considerations? What about the way that it's learning, you know, really awful biases from the text that it's trained on? And then the stochastic parrots part of it is, okay, so what happens if people believe that that's a person talking? Yeah. Right? Um, and so, you know, we're a pretty solid paper, happy to submit it. Um and then while we were waiting for the conference to review it, um, someone at Google got very upset about it and ended up firing um, two of my co-authors. Really? The, uh, firing Tim Nickebrew, That's a, that was a famous firing. It like made yeah. headlines that she was fired. Why would it have angered Google? I mean, she was employed by Google as a re- AI researcher? Yeah, it's AI ethics specifically. Like writing papers like this was literally her job. Yeah, and so why why would that anger Google? Um, I so I don't know, um, and I um, sort of only have the outsider knowledge of this. But um, uh, and the the thing that surprised me is that we thought we would be ruffling feathers at OpenAI because we were talking about GPT three as sort of like the main example of this. Yeah. Um, Google already had something called BERT that's a bit older. They were working towards Lambda, though I don't know that any of us on the team knew that. I certainly didn't. Um, and I guess it was just a little bit too directly to the heart of, hey, this stuff that you're betting everything on might not be a good idea. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the funny thing is that what the, the initial ask from Google was retract the paper or take the Google co-authors off of it. 
Um, wow. So there was this moment where my PhD student and I were saying, okay, this would be really strange to put a paper out there that's really the work of seven people with only our two names on it, but let's ask them what they want to do. Yeah. And everyone at, on the Google side said, our co-authors, we want this out in the world, go for it. Like, publish the mm -hmm. paper and we'll figure out how to put something in the acknowledgements that, like, you know, says it's not just our work. Yeah. Um, and then Dr. Gabriel was like, you know, this isn't right. They haven't told me why they don't want this paper published. Um, so she pushed back and sort of in that interaction ended up getting fired. Um, but the sort of one of the things about it was you'd think if Google's goal was to either have this paper not come out or be unknown or not be associated with Google, <laughs> they, they massively failed. Yeah, no, I mean, I it made headlines that that yeah. that a AI researcher, AI ethics researcher, was fired for writing a paper about AI ethics. I remember when it happened, yeah. um, and it certainly drew more attention to this issue. Um, this is what people call the Streisand effect. I'm not a fan of that phrase. For I, I find it a little glib, but it, it is what happened. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have not ever had a piece of my writing be so widely read as that paper. Yeah. Um, and so then there was, you know, that whole firing went down while we were still waiting to hear back from the conference if it was accepted or not. Yeah. Um, fortunately, the reviews had been done. So it was actually reviewed anonymously, um, which is good. Like That's how it's supposed to work. Peer review, in, in our field at least, you're supposed to review the paper not knowing who wrote it so that you're not making a decision based on like, okay, do I think so-and-so has good ideas? But do I think these are good ideas? Yeah. Right. So the paper was reviewed anonymously, but then um, the sort of and have had positive enough reviews that it would have gotten in no matter what. But then this whole thing blew up. And then we are like doing the revisions before the version that actually gets published is like, wow, we're going to have to put really fine polish on this paper because everybody's <laughs> going to read it. <laughs> well, I mean. It's not a bad scenario. It's not a bad end result. I mean, uh, for the people who lost their jobs, that's bad. Um, but, you know, to have so much attention given to this work, that is good. Um, I, I'm really interested, though, and, and uh, apologies if I'm being too reductive about the point of your work, because I have not read this particular paper, um, although I'm, I'm excited to go read it now. Uh, but the comparison to parrots is really interesting to me because the fact is that uh, I agree with you that I think parrots are, you know, they're not using language, they're reproducing sounds, and they're smart enough to associate a particular set of sounds with perhaps a certain input or output that like, oh, if when I see X, I make sound Y, thing Z that I like happens, I get a, a cola nut or whatever it is that, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Alex, the famous gray parrot would like. Um, but we are such... Like language is so deeply hardwired inside of us as this thing that is connected to intelligence um, that when we see the parrot do that, we are, oh, the parrot is intelligent. It's almost impossible for us to not treat the parrot as, you know, a an equal mind when it is speaking to us this way. I've seen TikToks. I'm uh, sorry, TikTok has come up so much, but I've seen <laughs> TikToks of people like, you know, with their TikTok, with their parrot training videos of like, look, my parrot is it, my parrot said, I love you. And the parrot really loves me. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think the parrot loves you in the way that you are saying it does, but it's almost impossible for you to not take it that way because language is so deeply encoded in you. And so that seems to me to be a great comparison to what we're doing with GPT-3. I mean, our uh, our own in, innate desire to ascribe intelligence to language is like bottomless. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's problematic the other way too. So I don't know if you've had the experience of traveling to another country or culture where you don't speak the language. Mm -hmm. And it is really hard to get yourself taken seriously as an intelligent being 
if you can't yes. speak the language, right? And yes. it's also really important on the other side of that to like, as we are talking with someone um, in the, so, you know, English is my first language, sounds like it's your first language. It is a second language for many, many people, right? Yes. English is, is weird in many ways, and that's one of them. Um, and to remember to like push back against that notion when someone's looking for their words and they have an accent that makes it clear that English is not their first language, to remember, okay, that means this person has a whole other language that they're not using. Yeah. And I need to remember that as I'm thinking about it. And, and we have deep prejudices about language both ways, language being associated with intelligence um, that it's really important to keep an eye on. Um, this is kind of, so the parrot, the parrots are intelligent in a way that GPT-3 is not, right? Yes. Um, and dogs too. So my, I have this friend who got these little buttons that you can use to train dogs. Like oh, I've make, seen these. Yeah. Seen yeah. Yeah. And, and she, the, do the dog hits the button and the dog and the go dog goes like, walk now or whatever. It's like, oh, the yeah. dog is speaking to me. Yeah. Exactly. The, the, button, you, the buttons have a little talk box on them. Yeah. Yes. And you record your own voice in it. So my friend um, recorded, I think, walk and meal and treat and put them there for her dog. And then after a while, the dog's just like, treat, treat, treat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's amazing. Uh, and by the way, why my girlfriend will not let me get those buttons for our dog, even though I really want to get them. But I have also seen people who, they put out like 40 buttons and, mm -hmm. and the, they say water, now, tomorrow, yesterday. And then the people will sort of cherry pick little inputs of the dog going like, um, water now and they'll go no we're not going to go on a walk to the beach today um we just did that yesterday and then the dog is like water yesterday and they're like yes oh you have a sense of past and future i'm like no this dog doesn't the dog is hitting stuff and it looks very intentional because the dog is smart enough to know that pressing the button causes a response but the dog doesn't have these concepts the dog is you you are your brain is doing yeah. a wonderful thing, which is creating meaning out of semi-random inputs, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and noticing those ones and getting excited about it, and then the rest of it's just noise that we don't care about, right? So the cherry yeah. picking, when you're when you're publishing work in this area, if you want to not cherry pick, you have to be very intentional about it from the beginning. I am going to run ten instances, and I'm going to print all ten, right? If you mm -hmm. if you don't make that rule for yourself. It is really easy to like, okay, I'm playing with a, oh, I'll put this one in the paper, yeah. right? Not even thinking I'm cherry picking. It's like, oh, that one's fun. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But th this, this impulse that we have, or this ability that we have to see meaning in other minds places, it also strikes me as like a very beautiful thing about humans that we do that. And like, it, it seems like it could be positive regarding AI. Like I'm sure you're very familiar with, but for folks who are not, there's like an AI game called AI Dungeon, which takes text from all different you know pieces of fan fiction and et cetera, et cetera. And it creates a text game where it says like, you are a wizard, what do you wanna do? You're in front of a castle and you say, go into the castle. And it's like, okay, you go into the castle, you see X, Y, Z there, you can play it like a text adventure. Or you can write, I want to fly away in a flying saucer and go meet Donald Trump. And it'll be like, okay, you get in the flying saucer and you fly to the moon and Donald Trump is there. And he says, you know, hello. And you're like, and it's just doing this, it's just generating text. But when you do it, your own brain's ability to turn the output of the pretty simple GPT-3 algorithm into a story that you find fun is what is making it interesting, right? It's yeah. like your, your own process your own imagination your own meaning ascribing thing and that strikes me as and people play this game for hours they pay for it you know they they enjoy it they use it to help them do, you know run role-playing sessions it's like just a very cool tool and game and that to me sounds like a wonderful use of this kind yeah. of technology because it 
embraces what we bring to the table rather than pretending like what we bring to the table is actually in the AI somewhere. Yeah, yeah. No, and I really love that because it's a it's a scenario where it's beneficial to have something that is sending you on topic, coherent seeming, but ungrounded text for you to react to and play with. So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a really good use case for that technology. Yeah. As opposed to something like, we're going to try to use this to replace search engines. Where it's like, no, no, no. I want my search engine, first of all, to be grounded in actual sources that I can go click through and look at, yeah. right? <laughs> Instead of just making stuff up. And secondly, I also don't want like that, that sort of dialogue set up sounds like it's really useful in that game in a way that it's not so useful in a search engine where it would mm. sort of narrow down what I can do if I have to like ask questions one at a time, as opposed to sort of frame my query and then get back a bunch of links that I can poke around and explore. Yeah. Wait, right? so hold on a second. Is, is replacing search engines with this kind of technology? Is that something like Google wants to do? They're talking about it. Yeah. Wow. So instead of, because I like the fact when I search the internet, the algorithm is pretty simple. I know how it works. Google used to be very public about here's how the page rank algorithm works. Mm-hmm. And I and I get the sense that I'm searching a database and I can adjust my search query if I want to find something in particular. I put I put Adam Conover in quotation marks so I don't see all those appearances where it's Adam and something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm not able to do that anymore, if instead I have to ask and AI questions, and it's just going to give, like when I say, when I Google Adam Conover age, I want to see a bunch of sources come up that I can pick and choose between. I don't just want the AI to go, Adam Conover is 32. And like, God knows where it got that information. And how do I check whether or not it's reliable? That seems like a real issue. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so there's, there's this paper by some researchers at Google. The first author's name is Metzler that was sort of laying out a research program for how to do this. And they laid Mm. out a bunch of problems that needed solving. um, And one of them was the sort of source problem. So we're giving you some information. It's not actually information, it's text strings that we turn into information, as you say, but they're calling it information. Um, But because it's synthesized out of lots and lots of web pages, um, it's no longer sort of a first class piece of information, what web page that came from. And so their proposed solution to this was, okay, well, we will also train it to generate URLs. And I'm like, that's backwards. You want to avoid (laughs) separating the information from its source rather than trying to stick sources back onto information, right? Yeah. But but like, okay, currently, if I Google, um, this is actually a pretty good example um, where uh, there there is a uh, problem that I have on Wikipedia, which is that it has my uh, birth date on there, Mm -hmm. um, but there is no source for the birth date, right? but if you go, if you want to know how old I am, you can go look at Wikipedia and say, oh, there's no source listed there. There's just like a, there's just like a random date there. Um, and I don't edit it because I don't edit my Wikipedia page because that's against the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you can go look at that. Um, and if you go look at how old is Adam Conover on Google, it'll lead you to Wikipedia and you can go there and you can see that. But if it is now just chewing up the information and giving you that output and then generating some URL to some other page that's like, oh, well, here's a place you can go to verify that. You no longer have that like chain of custody, that chain of evidence that lets you know, hey, this is where the information came from that lets you go find that, oh, citation needed on Wikipedia or whatever else it is. Mm Because I I understand as a researcher how Wikipedia works. I don't understand how this algorithm works. Right, right. And and, or or what it was trained on. What were those source Ah, things, right? Yes. and, you know, when you we're using this example of, you know, how old is Adam Conover? Well, how old is name is the kind of question that gets an answer between, you know, values between like zero and 120, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, what's the phone number I can use to reach whatever? Pretty sure GPT-3 could come up with a phone number <laughs> right. looking string of digits, right? <laughs> no, literally, you could probably open up GPT-3 and say, uh, today I called Adam Khan over on the phone at the number, and then it would just fill in some numbers because it would know that that's what a phone number looks like. But exactly. that wouldn't be the real phone number, but it would look like it would be. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, so there's some people actually at Google, this is a researcher named Carlini and colleagues, figured out that they could like poke at these language models and get them to disgorge training data, including things like phone numbers. Wow. Um, but it was like they had to be sort of specifically trying to do it. Yeah. So you can sort of, it's, it's bad in the sense that you can like collect personally identifying information and then like have the language model spit it out. And it's also bad in the sense that it'll make up phone numbers, right? Like, yeah. You know? <laughs> I, it is funny how you can even, you can see once you start looking into these things, what the sources are, but you have to dig for them. I, I was playing with, this is going to make me sound even more conceited because I'm still talking about myself, but I was playing with an AI art generation app, you know, where you put in a prompt and it generates some art for you. And, you know, you you put like a giraffe eating a bagel and it shows you something that's sort of pleasingly weird and looks almost like what you're talking about. And I was like, I wonder what its data set is. Where is it getting the original images from? So I tried getting it to generate me. I wrote Adam Conover because that's not just like a random phrase. And it generated a picture that I was like, that looks like my hair. That looks like my glasses, you know? So I'm like, it must be getting this shit off of Google images or some mm -hmm. other sort of image search. Mm -hmm. It must be searching the web because there's a bunch of images of me online. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't be in just some random piece of training data. And so I was able to even sort of like look between the cracks and like figure out which Getty images photo it was building it off of. But none of that was disclosed anywhere in the app that like that's where the training data is. And that was sort of a weird peek behind the curtain that I was able to do on it. Yeah. So one of the things that um, actually before we worked together, um, Dr. Gebru and Dr. Mitchell in, in a couple of projects and me in another project and others were working on this notion of data set documentation, that if we're going to be using systems that are trained on large amounts of training data and trying to figure out when it's appropriate to use them and when it would not be appropriate, we need to have them travel with very clear documentation of what's in the data. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem with these very large models is that uh, people generally don't have the budget to document the data sets at the size that they're working. Ah. Um, and there's this recent paper by Jesse Dodge and co-authors looking at sort of post hoc what's in this large data set called the common crawl, which is like, let's just crawl a bunch of web data. And it turns out that a very large amount of it is patent applications. So this is like training data for language models. Patent wow. applications, including a whole bunch that have been automatically translated from Chinese into English. Whoa. Okay. So that's not very good language training data. Because it's been like Google Translate has been run on these patent applications, and now it's being used to train a language learning model. Yeah, and probably not a very good use uh, match for like the use cases that you want to use a language model for. Right. And so that raises the whole issue when you've got these opaque sets where like training models, or sorry, you've got these uh, opaque uh, training data sets that they're using to train the AIs, even the people training the AIs don't know what's in all the data sets because they're just taking some gigantic store of data. Here's a bunch of fan fiction. Here's all of Twitter. Here's whatever. Here's all the Google image search. They just jam it all in there. And then they're trying to get an output from it. And they maybe have no idea what 
mistakes, what biases, what discriminatory ideas, what private data is in those data sets. And those could just be spat out the other end, giving a result that's racist or a result that is violating someone's privacy. Like maybe it actually, you type in Adam Conover's phone number and it gives you my real phone number because that was somewhere in the data. Um, Don't, nobody go do this, please. So is that, that's the issue, is it? Yeah, yeah. I've got a couple really nice examples of that for you. So one thing is they, they basically do scrape at a scale that it can't be vetted. And then there is some work towards saying like, hey, we, maybe we don't want lots of pornography in our language model training data. Maybe we don't want um, the sort of white supremacist hate sites in our training data. So let's think if we can like get rid of these. And so there's this practice, and I'm sorry, I don't have the guy's name, but there's this list of 400 some odd very bad words. Right? Mm-hmm. that were up there on GitHub because this person who was working in a, um, a, a music search site and was working on autocomplete. So you start typing in the name of, of a song mm-hmm. and he's like, these are the 400 some odd words that I don't want automatically popping up. Ah, right. You don't want your program to say, you know, uh, yeah, some some horrible <laughs> slur or something. Exactly. Uh, like, did you mean autocomplete? Right. Yeah, exactly. So list of words. Sensible thing to do. Like, I would be embarrassed if these words came up. I don't want. So then what people have done is they said, okay, any um, website that includes these words is a website we don't want to include in our scraped data. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is that that, uh, maybe partially because of its original context, um, the words are heavily skewed towards words about sex mm-hmm. and sexual identity. Mm. And so missing from this training data are actually web fora where LGBTQ people talk about their own lived experience and sort of inhabit their own identities in positive ways, all missing from the training data. Right. So that's that's one example. Um, Another one, there's a a researcher um, named Robin Spear who was looking at the biases in these learned systems. And she built a sentiment analysis system. So this is, imagine for some reason you have the problem of reading a Yelp restaurant review and predicting the stars. Right. This person wrote some text. How many stars did they give the re- the review the restaurant? Mm-hmm. Right. Artificial task. Like nobody ever needs to do that. Like you have the stars. But anyway, it's, it's a <laughs> also the idea of trying to divine any sense in what Yelp reviewers write <laughs> is ludicrous. Yelp reviewers are the stupidest people <laughs> on the entire internet. Right. They'll say the food was delicious, but it was raining. One star. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. Like okay. what the. <laughs> Okay, so I'm sorry, go on. So so, so Robin Spear creates this system where she's basically saying, okay, training data is Yelp reviews in English uh, as input, stars as output. And the test is going to be, okay, I'm going to give it some reviews we haven't seen and see if it can get the stars. But instead of just using that training data, she used something called word embeddings, which is basically taking the large language model and just picking out its representation of a single word. Mm. So when she's using that training data, instead of looking at the words as they are, she's looking at the words with this enriched context of how they get used across a much larger corpus. And that much larger corpus is general web garbage, Hmm. right? Um, And what she found, and she was like looking for this, she wasn't like, um, she wasn't like, "Uh uh-oh, I did it. She's like, let me see what happens, right? Um, The system was systematically underpredicting the stars for Mexican restaurants. Wow. Right? How did that happen? Well, we've got a whole bunch of terrible discourse in English on the internet about immigration from and through Mexico. Right. Such that the word Mexican becomes associated with negative sentiment words. You called the restaurant Mexican, you obviously didn't like it. 
Yeah. Look, I used to do a whole joke on stage about how I used to do like five minutes at making fun of Yelp. And part of the whole point was that if you go to Chinatown, the best mm-hmm. restaurants have the lowest star reviews because the people using the version of Yelp you're looking at are English speakers. And mm-hmm. English speakers often feel like like uh, upset and worried in Chinatown restaurants because for the first time in their lives, they're like in a place where they're not the majority population, right? Where, the, where, where they feel foreign. Right. And so you go look at reviews for a Chinese restaurant. Most of them are, are racist, right? It's people mm-hmm. saying like bizarre shit. Um, and so like, there's just that very general bias in that, in that data. So of course that would happen. Right. Right. But, and this is happening even outside of Yelp, right? Which is, I, I like the bit that you're describing because you're urging people to say, let's think about in crowdsourcing, who is the crowd and do I care about their opinion? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Where is that data coming from? Does it match what I'm trying to do here? Yeah. Right? If I'm if I'm the kind of tourist who decides to go to Chinatown, but then feels uncomfortable because I'm in Chinatown, then yeah, maybe I want to see what other people like me think on Yelp. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> But if you're the type of person who like actually wants the best cuisine in Chinatown, who wants the who wants the real shit, who wants the who wants the yeah. food that the non-English speakers like, that the people who live there like, Yelp might not be your best source. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and Yelp is I think it's transparent enough that like, we can look at that and go, OK, the way this person is talking makes me think they're not taking the same point of view as me. Right. Right. Because I'm but a human. I can understand. I can read a yeah. review. I can understand. Oh, this is this review was written by an asshole. I'm going to scroll past it. Yeah. Right. Right. But when you're looking at the sort of like average stars, you've already lost that information. Mm. And it takes someone like you to sort of go through and scroll through the reviews and say, hang, hang on. <laughs> yeah. There's a pattern here in Chinatown specifically because of who's using Yelp and then going to Chinatown. Yeah. And I bet the problem you would say is that the people who are creating our AI algorithms are not doing that analysis. They're just taking a huge data set and putting it in. They're not asking themselves, hey, hold on a second, what biases are embedded in this data set? Yeah. I mean, there are people looking at it now, but there's yeah. not enough. And they're also not making it possible for other people to do it. Right? Yeah. The people building it haven't looked, and then what they give you is not the data, not the description of the data, but here's my AI. Yeah. And I, I'd love to talk, because, God, I could talk to you for hours. This is, I'm having a blast. Um, but we do have to sort of like start to circle the airport and come in for a landing. So I want to return to a point that you made earlier um, because I don't want to breeze past it. You talked about how uh, we're starting to hear about AI systems being used as a way to make life easier on the people who have to design the systems in our world, that we could use it to, we could use AI to, you know, bring healthcare to people who don't have healthcare, things like that. And you said that you're really worried about these algorithms being used or AI being quote, quote unquote, AI being used instead of actually reshaping the systems in our society that are causing the problems to begin with. I wish you could talk a little bit more about that if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Um, I think it's just whenever someone steps in with a, I can solve this problem with AI. Um, that's, a, that's a really critical moment. You say, okay, you've identified a problem. Do I agree that that's a problem? Sometimes no, right? Sometimes the problem mm-hmm. being solved is we aren't doing enough surveillance. Let's do more surveillance. <laughs> maybe, maybe we don't need more surveillance, right? But, <laughs> um, but so uh, you've identified a problem. Do I agree with the problem? And then what are the other possible solutions? And to get to those other possible solutions, you often have to sort of widen the frame and step back because the framing of the problem as a task that AI can handle sort of usually blocks out a lot of other information. 
So if we return to those, um, I'm not sure I can do this quickly off the mental health example, because it's clearly a problem that the need for mental health services in this country outstrips the available people who are trained to do that job and yeah. are being paid to do that job. Yeah. Um, and you know that coming off or still living through what are we year three of the pandemic now or are we? I've lost track. Yes. Yeah. No. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's about um, right. That has taken an enormous toll on people's mental health, and there is a big need. Um, but I, then, well, maybe I can get there. So then, the the AI tech solutionists say, okay, in that big need, uh, let's get diagnoses fast. I'm like, is that really going to help? Yes, mm-hmm. diagnosis is is part of the issue. But um, so then you got a bunch of people who have diagnoses of dubious quality who still don't yeah. have the healthcare professionals to interact with. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So you often have to back up and say, okay, how did we get to where we are? And what are some choices we could make to ameliorate the system? Yeah. Um, and people will often sell AI as cheaper, um, but that doesn't necessarily take into account the cost of building the system, of maintaining mm-hmm. it over time, of evaluating it, and then continually evaluating, is this still working in our use case? And so on. Yeah. Um, so there's a when someone says I'm solving a problem with AI, that's a great moment to start asking some questions. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to use AI to help underserved people like who who don't have enough medical care. I mean, look, uh, in my new show, we did a whole episode on uh, what, you know, why the U.S. failed on COVID-19. And a big part of it was we have underfunded, frankly, defunded public health departments all across the country for decades, especially in poor areas. We visited a county in Alabama where there's one doctor in the entire county who splits his time between there and Montgomery. Um, And there's a little public, you know, health clinic that the public health department, it's like understaffed. They have a couple nurses and they're tasked with, you know, uh, overseeing, safeguarding the health of an entire county of people. This is a predominantly black county, one of the poorest spots in the country. And like the idea that, hey, we have some people who are underserved medically. How do we help them? The idea that you would do it with AI is at the very least being willfully ignorant of the reason that the place is underserved to begin with. It's not underserved because of some like gigantic problem, you know, some big boulder that we have to move some like, you know, some natural force that, you know, we need to overcome. It's because we as people have not invested in the particular place. And so that is a problem that is within our power to solve. And we don't need technology to solve it. We can do it just by like, you know, passing some bills, <laughs> like, exactly. you know, like, like just through regular human shit can solve it. We don't need some, some magical technology that by the way, probably can't do what you're claiming it can do. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So someone says they're solving a problem with AI. What's the problem? How else might we solve it? And how do we back up a little bit and see the larger context that that problem sits in? Yeah. Okay. That That's a wonderful answer. Well, I'd, I'd love to end with this. Um, how we opened this piece talking, we opened this episode talking about the piece in the New York Times and your criticisms of the framing um, and your your criticism of whether it, it even should take for granted that AI even exists. How would you like to see... AI covered differently in in journalism, what would you like to see, you know, the public and the people who inform the public do when they're talking about it? And by the way, should we just abandon this term AI at all? I mean, we in this conversation are continuing to use AI when we're talking about things that are frankly, as we've established, not intelligent. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would love to abandon, I you know, recommend Salami. 
as a possible answer. Um, I also, my, my son is very good at acronyms. And I put this question to him at one point before I learned the salami one. And he came up with uh, pseudosci, which stands mm. for pattern matching by syndicate entities of uncurated data objects through superfluous energy consumption and incentives. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I do sometimes like say, you know, AI and scare quotes and, and, you know, your audience is, is audio. So they're not going to see all the times that we did the, 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 scare quotes the or air, air quotes. punctuation marks. Yeah. yeah. Um, but maybe you can sort of hear it in the pause, but yeah, I think, I think we should abandon the term. And I think that we should, you know, ask questions like, um, what, uh, if someone is proposing an AI solution for something, uh, who's going to use it, who is going to be affected by its use? What happens if it gets the right answer? Who might get hurt by that? What happens if it gets the wrong answer? Who might get hurt by that? Is the person using it sufficiently supported to be able to contextualize what's coming out of there? And you know, how is the person selling this system making money off of it? And what yeah. are we giving up to them so that they can make that money? Yeah. What What about their framing of AI is benefiting them without you even realizing it, that, that, that concedes the point to them? When they say, AI is coming and we have to be ready, it's like, well, why do you want us to believe that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, climate change is coming and maybe we can do something about that. In fact, it's here and it's continuing and there's something we can yeah. do about that. AI is only coming if A, we keep trying to build it and B, we actually manage to. Right? Yeah. And and A is a decision we can make and, and B is not. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so we can we can say, you know, how how are systems being used that involve collecting lots and lots of data? What kind of regulation should we be making um, so that people can't just willy nilly collect and sell other people's data um, and uh, put systems in place that uh, cause these problems? Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show, Emily. It was it was wonderful talking to you. Where can people follow up and find your work? Where can they find this stochastic parrots paper? And uh, where else can they keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, so probably the, the best for keeping up is Twitter. I'm at Emily M. Bender. Um, and all of my publications are posted on my webpage at the University of Washington. I think if you Google Emily Bender, University of Washington, or if you remember to put in my M, um, either way, I think it turns up. <laughs> Um, and, um, yeah, so I, I keep that up to date. I, you know, back in the day I had a few publications that weren't open access, but everything else, um, since then you should be able to just click through and see a PDF. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on, Emily. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you once again to Emily Bender for coming on the show. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. If you did, hey, please consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Adam Conover. I want to thank our producer, Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, and everyone who supports this show at the $15 a month level on Patreon. That's Adrian, Alexi Batalov, Allison Liparato, Alan Liska, Anne Slagle, Antonio LB, Aurelio Jimenez, Beth Brevik, Braden, Brandon Sisko, Camus and Lego, Charles Anderson, Chris Staley, Courtney Henderson, David Condry, David Conover, Drill Bill, Dude with Games, M, Hillary Wolken, Jim Shelton, Julia Russell, Kelly Casey, Kelly Lucas, Lacey Tiganoff, Mark Long, Michael Warnicky, Miles Gillingsrud, Mom Named Gwen, Mrs. King Coke, Nicholas Morris, Nikki Batelli, Nuya Gick, Ippaluk, Paul Mauk, Rachel Nieto, Richard Watkins, Robin Madison, Samantha Schultz, Sam Ogden, Shannon 
Grimmett, Spencer Campbell, Susan E. Fisher, Tyler Darach, and Whiskey Nerd 88. Thank you all so much. And if you want to join their ranks, head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. Of course, I want to thank the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I often record these episodes on and Andrew WK for our theme song. You can find me online at adamconover.net or at adamconover wherever you get your social media. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time on Factually. Factually. 